Coaching Inside the Box. A youth soccer coaching podcast. A Brit, a Brazilian, and an American discuss culture and environment and the impact it has on youth development. Can you coach inside the box? Hello, hello, hello. Episode 13 was absolute fire, and we're back fast and furious. There's absolutely no rest for the weary with another thought-provoking discussion for you guys to consume with your ears. Episode 14, discussing fast footwork, juggling, and their value to training. Are they useful? I'd say yes. Are they the best use of training? I don't know. That's what we're going to be discussing all uh, episode long. Oh, and I should mention, we had a few listener questions from our Futsal podcast, um, so we'll dig into those at the end of this episode. Um, and so that is a good segue for me to mention to you listeners. If you have questions and you have my personal cell phone, or Andy or Philippe's, text them to them. If not, hit us up on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, wherever you like. We're happy to take those questions in. These are really thought-provoking questions that came in through to my personal cell phone um, from a good f- coaching friend of mine about futsal that I'd like to address at the end of the episode. But with that said, before we dig in, let's introduce who we have on the show today. Philippe Abreu. Can, can, I, can I interrupt a little bit? Well, hold on a second. Already? I haven't introduced you yet. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, just, you know, I'm, I'm just going over in my mind, you know, that you, know, you said um, you know, that, that you wanted the audience to consume something with their ears. Correct. Yeah. How else are they going to consume a podcast? <laughs> I mean, is it that state of the obvious, really? Uh, I mean, says, says the guy who's the king of using way too many words and everything and stating the obvious. But I wouldn't state the obvious. You have to consume it with your ears, <laughs> would I? I mean, sure. I mean, you have to consume this with your left butt cheek. <laughs> oh God, that's too far. That see, we've got a nice general. This is for anybody to listen to podcasts. And here, Andy just takes us to our rating right right off the bat. A whole nother level. Yeah. Uh, so I guess I That's should mention, level, since I hadn't, I hadn't yet introduced Andy, I know this will come as a surprise to you, to everybody listening, but hailing from Oxford, England today, um, we have Andy Barney. Andy, thanks for joining us on the show. Oxford, England, uh, where... I wasn't sure if you were going to come. Most so. everybody, you know, is intelligent and consumes things with their ears. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, so th- those of you guys are listening, I usually write an intro up um, and then try to not sound like I'm reading it when I do it. Sometimes I do better than others. Um, but I wrote an intro for Philippe, whose dad is in town, only to find out as we start to record the show. His dad's actually not in town anymore. He just got on a plane to go to Las Vegas. Um, but Philippe, your dad's been in town for the last few days. What's that like? It was great. haven't seen him in, in two years. And... You know, it's nice to, to see family again. And it was the first time he met my wife because, you know, we started dating uh, right before COVID. So I was already here. And, you know, with the borders being closed, I couldn't go uh, visit in Brazil. And then my wedding day, uh, my dad and mom uh, were not able to come because the borders were open. So, yeah, I mean, it was super nice to, to have him for a few days. And he's coming back for Thanksgiving. And, yeah, uh, just a great time. And I'm just I mean I'm I'm intrigued as how the sly old fox used visiting 
Philippe as an excuse to get to go to Las Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Philippe said he's coming back in a few days. And I was like, you hope. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> I wonder how I can use that angle to, uh, to take a trip to Vegas. <laughs> Hopefully your mom doesn't listen to the podcast because if she does, we just outed him. Well, my mom doesn't speak English, so I think that there shouldn't be a problem there. But yeah, actually it's funny because my dad is going to Vegas to visit a friend who he hasn't seen in 30 years. What's so. her name? <laughs> <laughs> uh, conveniently, your mom and dad got married, what, 29 years ago? Uh, yeah. Actually, they celebrated 34 years of marriage like last week. So. Okay. All right. Very good. Well, and, and for those of you guys that are watching on YouTube, you've seen Philippe's vintage Benfica top um, that looks as old as Philippe is, perhaps. Um, Philippe's dad Probably is Portuguese. More. Yeah, Philippe's dad has a Portuguese passport, which is why he's able to come to the United States. But your Correct. mom does not have a Portuguese passport, needs a visa. Apparently, wherever they give out visas in Brazil, um, COVID is still a thing there. So she is not here because she doesn't have a visa yet. Correct. Very good. Well, cool. Andy, how, how, how on earth are you? Uh, another week older, unfortunately. <laughs> that that, that uh, saying is going through the hourglass quick these days, huh? It uh, yeah changes one's perspective on life uh, significantly. Yeah. So, so sometimes it's hard because we're like joking around, and then Andy takes us straight to like a really a very serious, deep, serious, deep, serious thought topic. I yeah, wasn't I mean, ready I, to stop. I don't want to. I don't want to be you know like a downer, but you know I feel like I could die tomorrow. <laughs> In which case, we'll always have this memory. <laughs> Be careful when you're driving home. <laughs> All right, let's dig in to the topic at hand. Fast footwork, juggling, um, uh, and, and their usefulness to training. Andy, you wrote a, a great chapter in your book, Training Soccer Legends, specifically about fast footwork in your first book. Um, and I, I'd like to start um, this podcast episode kind of in the same way that you started started that chapter. Um, and so we're going to play a game, a game that my kids love to play. It's, I think they call it the categories game. I'm going to give a category to you and Philippe, and you guys are going to alternate turns mentioning something from that category. And my kids play this like fast food restaurants, and they see how many fast food restaurants that they can name. But it has to be fairly quick, if this makes sense. And so the category I'm going to give you two is, um, is, is, is topics that you could cover in training from a soccer perspective, right? So, so like just some examples, right? Some shooting would be an example or first time shooting would be an example of this. And all of these topics, the one rule is they actually have to have a game application. So they've got to be applicable to a game, a soccer game, if that makes sense. So we show up in practice as kids. Uh, Andy, I remember distinctly, we'd always come running up to you like, Andy, Andy, what are we doing in practice today? And almost every time you would respond with something completely dumb like underwater basket weaving or <laughs> we're going to go skiing in the snow slopes with, with uh, kangaroos or something dumb. And I so, wonder why you still don't believe me. <laughs> <laughs> so specifically, those wouldn't work for our game, right? Does this make sense? Are you guys following? I didn't prep these guys before that we're going to play. But something like where to stand before you sub on, at ha where to stand on the sideline before you sub could be something you could cover and practice, and Seriously? it's applicable to games because most of the seven- and eight-year-olds I coach don't know where to stand, right? So you could mention that if you'd like. Are you guys ready? I refuse to mention that one. But uh, so I'm not saying that you have to. So you're asking us a question. 
No, I'm, I'm telling you the category. I'm going to say start, and Andy's going to go first because we'll let go age before beauty, right? Andy's going to go first, and you're going to jam beauty. <laughs> you're going <laughs> to mention something that is some that it, that is is a topic you could cover in practice that has a game application, and you're going to give me that. No, you're going to mention it. Is it, who's on first? What's on second? He's mediating. You're gonna. So say, I have to come up with the topic. No. And then I'll go next and I'll say another topic. And then you say a topic. So and then should we demonstrate for Andy? Let's have a practice round. Let's have a practice round. Philippe and I are going to go. All right. Ready? Um, we'll go basketball just to, so we don't steal any topics. I don't know anything don't about know basketball. That's why I'm going to win. Okay. Uh, Three-point shot. Two-point shot. <laughs> Slam dunk. Free throw. <laughs> Pick. Passing? Sure. Bounce pass. I'm out. Okay. Andy, do you understand the, the concept now? Those are all things we could practice in a basketball practice that would have a game application during a game. Okay, so, you know, it's, it's, we're, we're playing each other. You yeah. and, you the, and the Philippe. The person that, you know. Oh, Andy's got to turn this into a competitive cauldron competition. Yeah. I don't really that, care who wins. I'm just going to use this to, to, to liaise into fast forward conversation. I've been lying all through this podcast series. You I don't really care who wins. <laughs> 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 all right, very good. So I think Andy understands. In my mind, that. I'm practicing like crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine playing charades with Andy on Thanksgiving night? <laughs> Stuff's thrown at the wall because he didn't think the judging was fair. <laughs> All right, here we go. Understood? Yes. All right, let's see. Right, let's see. I'm interested to see if you guys can get to 15 or 20 different things back and forth in a volley of, of topics that have some type of game application. Okay. All right, well, age before beauty. Andy's going to go first and go. Uh, how do I start this? <laughs> Say first time passing. First time passing. First time shooting. Heading. Volley. Tackling around the waist. Uh, one-on-ones. <laughs> um, <laughs> blocking. Skew. <laughs> Volleying. Oh, that's the second one. He did say that twice. Very good. Okay, so uh, I forgot to remember that Andy is terrible at improv. <laughs> Who said? <laughs> I said volley. <laughs> I bet you didn't say volleying. <laughs> so, Mr. <laughs> competitive Cauldron himself just got destroyed by Felipe. I expected you guys to go longer than that. Nobody said throw in. Nobody said corner kick. Nobody said goal kick. Well, it was too easy. Well, but all of those things are things that have a use, right? They Correct. are useful. And specifically in Andy's, in Andy's chapter, he talked about how working on throw ins is by definition useful. So, that's the point of this exercise. Correct. Okay. Um, Couldn't uh, we have just gone there without the game? Yeah, but I, I, I like to think that the people at home consuming this with their ears enjoyed the game. Um, uh, but maybe not. Maybe they didn't. Um, maybe they would have preferred us to play. I think we just insulted their intelligence, to be honest. <laughs> so tell us, listeners at home, did you enjoy this game? Yes or no? Thumbs up or thumbs down? Um, but you mentioned specifically in your chapter that throw-ins would be a useful thing to do in training. It just wouldn't be very useful. There are hundreds of things we could work on in training that would have more usefulness to that. And fast footwork, um, uh, well, Andy, let's throw it to you. What do you think of fast footwork? Is that a useful um, thing that you can do in training? Yes or no? If it is, is it the most useful? Is it efficient? Let's go back to throw-ins. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Good. Because I just spent the season watching uh, my, my daughter's college team you know, uh, and, and I had one of these players on my last uh, girls team in the club 
um, you know, where the throw-in, you know, in the attacking third of the other team was a flip throw and ended up being as good as a corner kick every time, you know, because the girl who took the throw-in was so accurate with the throw-in, you know, and on my team, Ashlyn Henry was the name of the girl and she's playing D1 now. And, uh, you know, she had an incredible flip throw, you know, that got the ball into the center of the goal mouth virtually every time. And it was an incredible weapon. So, anyway. That's, you just you know, want to share that? Well, it's, you know, it's not well, just your average throw-in. So, there's, there's, there's the average throw-in to somebody fairly close, yeah. hopefully to keep possession. Sure. And then there's the incredible throw-in on a flip that, you know, that goes into the goal mouth like a rocket that creates goal-scoring opportunity. Well, I didn't expect, expect to spend this much time on throwing, but while we're here, I'll share a story of a red card I remember you getting in a tournament that we played. I was probably nine or so out at Worlds of Fun or it was a Worlds of Fun tournament or something like this, but you would just talk to us about how we can be deceptive. Again, we didn't work on the throw-in during practice, but you talked to us at halftime of how we can even be deceptive at the throw-in. Fake one direction and go the other direction, and the referee called us on a foul throw three times in a row. <laughs> and finally, I don't know what you said to the referee, but essentially, like, you were ruining my coaching point and you were wrong you can fake it one direction and go the other direction and you got a red card and i remember thinking that that was pretty cool it was probably all the f words i threw in between the, <laughs> i the think i'd have remembered those <laughs> um no, but I, I, i'm i didn't get red cards very often uh, that's so i think it's why it's memorable it's maybe the just, only red card just when you were playing right yeah uh, uh, but before we move on I was coaching a game in, in Springfield, Missouri, and I remember this like it was yesterday, and the referee, and I never said anything to referees, and the referee, um, you know, was, was having a tough game, let's say, and, and, uh, and anyway, he, um, uh, he uh, called a foul on another player from the other team, you know, and, uh, you know, one player was injured, and the referee turned to me and said, you know, I'm going to let them have a sub, you know, do you want a sub, you know, and, and, I shook my head, but as I was shaking my head, I whispered to my assistant coach, yeah, I'd like to sub you. <laughs> and, he, and he heard me <laughs> from like 40 yards away, and he threw me out. <laughs> and took great pleasure throwing me out. <laughs> and I, I walked away <laughs> laughing. I couldn't believe the guy had rabbit ears. He could hear me from the distance. He couldn't see a thing, but he could hear everything. <laughs> oh, my God, gosh. He would consume this yeah. podcast very well. <laughs> <laughs> you know how people compensate? You know, you know, if you've got a lack of one sense, your other senses, you know, grow in, a, in another direction. Well, he did have a white cane with him while he was refereeing. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, um, okay, so uh, we're now what several minutes into this podcast yet <laughs> because of my game, uh, specifically or Andy's competitiveness. Um, uh, is that a word? Competitive hey, nature. I gotta, I gotta <laughs> stop here because all right, this is this is how I wanted to begin today's podcast. Um, just this one time, let's forget the feel good stuff we usually do at the start of our podcasts. Smash the audience in the mouth. <laughs> Begin the pod with an evaluation of the importance of doing the most effective thing with a clear vision of what you want to achieve. 
do this to cut off the small talk and get right into criticizing, juggling as a practice component and emphasize there are hundreds of things that should be practiced before juggling or fast footwork, which means that only the bad coach that hasn't taken the time to plan properly and needs a filler uses juggling as a practice component. So on a scale of one to 10, how did I do? (laughs) (laughs) You failed to mention that before we started recording. (laughs) You didn't mention the silly game we played. Look at it. <laughs> All right, uh, moving forward. So, uh, so let's let's get in, right? Um, uh, fast footwork and juggling. Andy obviously is not a fan. Um, would that be a fair statement, Andy? You know, and to to preface my response, you know, I spent a lot of time on juggling in my early coaching career, and you know, my my personal record is seventeen hundred and thirty three, and I never juggled as a kid, hardly. But I did this as an adult because I kind of got um, infected by the American disease of juggling. Is that a, is that a more American thing? I, I think it is to a certain extent. At least compared to England where you grew up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think juggling is a lot bigger over here, you know, and, you know, the same as ladders for speed and agility training. Mm-hmm. You know, is it, I don't know of any coach in, in Britain that maybe there are a few these I've days. I've never seen a ladder in Brazil before I moved to America. Before you moved to America. Yeah. And, I and didn't know what it was. It was so funny. My first college preseason, and I saw those things. And like everybody was, and I didn't have the coordination. I had no idea what to do. Two foot in, one out. Like, and the coach was laughing so hard because like I couldn't do it. It took but me like a couple but you, weeks. To but you're very quick and have great feet. Yeah, it's, it's specificity of training. Yeah. You know why they use ladders over here? Uh, football, football thing. baseball. Yeah, yeah, it's football. Thing. It's, it's things you do with your hands. Yeah. So they don't train the feet to be quick. You know, because they're never using their feet to control the ball. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's not an improvisational thing. So they get you to do certain fast footwork drills with a ladder where you have to pick your feet up over the rungs. Mm-hmm. You know, but training with a ball is vastly more effective in terms of teaching full body coordination as well as fast footwork sure. than working with a ladder is. Yeah. Because the ball is live and it doesn't obey you. You have to make it obey you. Mm-hmm. A ladder doesn't move. You know, so you don't have to adjust to the ladder like you do to a ball, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. I, th- I think that uh, you and I have had great detailed conversations on athletes that started in soccer but ended up professional somewhere else because the, the ball moving while their feet move and all of the variables that go in that are so much more difficult, meaning you're gaining so much more ground, right? Work on the hardest thing first, not the easiest thing first. It, it, it drives me crazy because I walk into our facility, which is built for rebounding. You know, it's built for fantastic shooting development. You know, it's built for one-on-one under pressure. And I'll see a coach with a ladder out. Always an American coach <laughs> doing drills without a ball. Yeah. You know, and talk about, you know, as the kids say, SMH. I mean, you know, it just <laughs> drives me crazy, you know, to see them you know, using a ladder that has no relation to the game. You know, and it's nowhere near as good as working with a ball. Yeah, and um, you won't see me using a ladder. Um, but uh, but moving forward into the fast footwork discussion, so fast footwork, there is a, a pretty intense fascination, I think, with fast footwork and juggling within within the traditional uh, training training environment and training culture for for youth coaches, and and 
don't get me wrong. Like when I see videos on on TikTok or YouTube or wherever of kids doing some really cool stuff and really rehearsed um, uh, uh, fast footwork uh, sequences, if you will, it's like impressive stuff. It's stuff that I couldn't do. But what always I struggle to to gain is is most of it isn't very game like, and and the the pieces of it that are really game like are actually the more simple pieces of one the game and two the 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 fast footwork sequence that they're doing, and so I don't think that it has much of a tra- transfer as compared to something that is way more difficult that transfers more. Right? Simply put, in your in your um, uh, chapter in Training Soccer Legends, Andy, you basically say like, look. We only have so much time. It's a finite amount of time that kids are going to train in the game or play the game. And so every moment that we that we choose what the kids do, we are taking that finite time and, and applying it. And so we should pick a few things and the most transferable things so that we can teach numerous things to the kids at once. Is that a fair description of how you wanted me to start the podcast? Yeah, you know, more or less. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Philippe, growing up in Brazil, uh, I, I know you've said this before, you regret how much? Or am I putting your words correctly? You regret how much you worked on juggling? I mean, I blame Nike commercials for me not being a super successful professional athlete because when Ronaldinho was at his prime 2004 through 2006, you know, and Brazil had him, Robinho, Ronaldo, Adriano, like that unbelievable generation, Nike started doing a ton of commercials on the Brazilian players with juggling and, you know, freestyle stuff. And that's when I was like 11, 12, 13. And YouTube had just uh, came in and I was fascinated for that. And all I did was at home, after school, juggle, juggle, juggle and try the around the worlds and all the crazy tricks um, that I would see. And I had, I was so crazy that I would look for new tricks that they would do. And I would train that same trick over and over and over and over and over again until I got it. And I had like a list. Okay. I knew how to do this one. I know this one. I knew this one. I knew this one. And always looking for, so like, and I started doing videos myself and I was like, I was so good at it. So good at it. Uh, and that time honestly was a time in my career that I kind of fell down a little bit in my soccer, you know, um, performance. You know, when I was younger, I was much better. And then after, you know, I kind of got over that side, I started picking it back up again and, you know, uh, progressing more uh, in my game because I started working on the more valuable things. But like that two, three-year period, I mean, I wasted so much time. If I had put that same time working on skills and shooting, any other thing that is more applicable uh, to the game, I mean, I think my develop with that same intensity, I think I would have been a, a much better player. Why do you say juggling is not applicable to the game? Well, because, it, first of all, you're popping the ball up instead of bringing it down. So... There are a few times... I got to stop you here. The goal you scored for the Comets in the professional game... We put it on our socials. ...last week, <laughs> where the ball came to you and with the outside of your foot, you popped it up. Finally, your juggling has come to pay off. And, 
And on the swivel, you smashed the, the ball, and it went through the goalkeeper's legs, but hey, they all count, right? Yeah, exactly. You smashed the ball into the back of the net, you know, and it was a brilliant goal. So you can't say that your juggling didn't have some benefit. Sure. And no. I'm, I'm in agreement that, you know, it might not have had the ultimate benefit, and you might have been playing for the Brazilian national team now if you'd have focused for those three years on juggling. But, you know, we're not extremists here. We know that juggling has some skill benefit. Yeah, no, 100%. 100%. All we're trying to make the point is that it's not the best thing to do. Correct. If you want to be, you know, if you want to go to the top of the game of soccer, but also if you want to be the the, the brave, creative leader in life that only comes if you can dominate opponents in the Mm one-on-one. And juggling is not going to help you dominate opponents in the one-on-one. Neither, to any great degree, is fast footwork. Yeah. But. You know, specifically a fantastic pre-fake followed by a Maradona turn mm-hmm. that's absolutely perfect will help you dominate in the one-on-one. And, and I think fast footwork, and you guys may have a different opinion here, I think fast footwork, like the really neat and tidy touches and total ball mastery that fast footwork, somebody that really digs in and does it, I think what it, it, it enables them to do is, one, the, I think they're comfortable on the ball, right? So that, that benefits all parts of the play. But it helps them get out of really tight little spaces. But so do individual fakes and moves. So does the L turn. So does the Cruyff. So does the Maradona turn. So does the the Puskas, right? But all of those skills help you beat a defender, not just escape out of little bitty tight spaces. Yeah, and, and so in the fast food work, you escape, but you don't go anywhere. Correct. Because you're not exploding. You're not actually gaining anything. You know, you might like do something real quick, create a little bit of space, but like you're not training the explosion. You know, if you learn a skill that will do the same thing already exploding, you know, it's an extra touch that you're eliminating and you're going quicker and at the highest level, that makes a difference. For fast footwork to beat a defender, the defender has to have made a terrible mistake, has to have committed to the tackle when they, they couldn't win the ball. You know, any defender that's jockeying, delaying, channeling, weight on the back foot, fast footwork will not beat that defender. You must have a preset fake, you know, like a, you know, a, a scissors, you know, or a marathon turn, you know, when you're going at a defender. You know, if you're going to beat that defender, it's got to be an optical illusion. You've got to be the David Copperfield of the dribble, you know, and, you know, you've really got to sell the fake before you go in the other direction. Yeah. And fast footwork just doesn't cut it. Yeah. And, it, and you know what's funny? I've never seen fast footwork in Brazil. Like, really? I did not grow nothing. Never, like the outside, the pattern outside, sequence outside stuff. inside, outside, inside, pull back, push, pull back, like that kind of stuff. Never. I wonder TikTok, if that's, TikTok, 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 never. I wonder if that's a fairly American thing. I mean, it's, I, I remember as a kid seeing it on VHS tapes of like, here's some sweet little U triangle fast footwork never stuff you could do. That. And like, and like, so I did it at home sometimes because I was, you know, whatever. Right. And like, I remember thinking, oh, this is kind of fun. And like, it, 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 it has like this juggling feel to it. And like, oh, I'm trying to be like Samba on the ball. Um, but like, if you really envision it, and I can imagine some people listening to this podcast, consuming it with their ears might be frustrated from a perspective of like, oh, no, no, they do all these little skills and then they explode all these fast footwork movements and then they explode into space well 
yeah, but like you're making intuitive from a muscle memory perspective all of these cool little skill like like touches that don't go anywhere, and then eventually they go go somewhere. So they get one repetition in twenty seconds or thirty seconds or a minute or however long it, this this sequence is of an explosion, and the explosion is, in my opinion, the most important piece in beating somebody off of the dribble. It's the explosion. It's the change of pace into the explosion that a fake a fake and a move a Maradona a scissors a, an L turn provides let me make you know in addition to what you've just said built into fast footwork there is a big red stop sign every time you complete one piece of fast footwork you have to stop and do over stop and do over so not only you're not training the explosion you're training the thing you least want to have happen which is stop and do it again stop and do it again stop and do it again but don't go anywhere mm-hmm. and and you know i'm going to use my you know, one of my favorite stories you know which is uh, when i was taking my b license in in tampa florida uh and you know i i was um intrigued by um uh this this uh, coach called george visvari those of you longtime listeners have heard this story again but you've always got to hear it on this episode yeah on this podcast this, this is so relevant to yeah. this podcast it's got to be told again and george was the staff coach for the ussf where's he from like hungary or something hungary escaped from behind the iron curtain he was shot at on his way across the border and and you know kind of lucky to escape and make it here because a lot a lot of people didn't but uh, George ended up coaching at, uh, at the State University of New York and won a national championship when he was coaching there. And, and uh, you know, quite a character, very knowledgeable about the game. And, uh, you know, we were in this, this, uh, this game, this scrimmage game, and, and this, this one guy was, was, you know, doing this and doing that and doing, you know, a little bit of this with the feet and doing a little bit of something else, a little bit of something else. And after he'd had the ball for like 30 seconds, George, you know, basically came unglued. Mm. Stop, stop. This is garbage. This is garbage. Come round, come round. You see this? You see this? This is stupid. You know, and, and you know, and we're looking at each other going, you know, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it looked good to me. Yeah. <laughs> so what's your point? And he said, this, this is like on a cold day. You wear a wetsuit. You go out surfing. You know, you're cold, you know, and, and you know, you need to pee. And, you know, but you, you, you don't want to go to the shore. And so you pee where you are in the wetsuit. And he said, and yeah, it's just like this, because the pee give you now it's a warm feeling, but don't go anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) That's just brilliant. And and that's what fast footwork drills do. Give you a nice warm feeling. Yeah, I'm really accomplishing something, but it builds in the opposite of what you need, which is a stop instead of an explosion. Yeah, it looks cool. Right. right, that warm feeling looks cool. But there's another problem with fast work because fast footwork is not actually designed to create a complete image that is the opposite of what you're going to do. Fast footwork is just to build some quickness of the feet, you know, but it doesn't have any deception built into the fast footwork. Zero. So what you see is what you get, WYSIWYG. What you see is what you get, and there's no deception in it. So you're actually teaching somebody to do something that has no real importance except for building a little bit of agility 
you know, in the person that's practicing the fast footwork. There's I, no I'll drop challenge. of the shoulder or anything, I'll, any body faint or I'll anything. I'll challenge you a little bit, right, And for, for the listeners that disagree with what we're saying. And I, my challenge is, is not that there, when you say there's no deception, I think there's some deception, right? When, they're, when you're rolling the ball one way and then taking it the other way, like that's inherently deceptive. It's just not nearly as deceptive as a shoulder faint added in there off of a Matthews, right? And, and, and the specifically the, the inside-outside movement is a, is a fast footwork movement that's often in sequences but without the hop without the shoulder faint and without the explosion it's not truly deceptive enough to beat a defender of any worth right and so 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 if you're listening at home and you're thinking yeah there's deception within fast footwork yeah but not nearly as much as there could be if you're teaching very specifically you know fakes and moves that are meant to to, to fake out a defender and go somewhere and using your training time to really hone in in a maestro kind of way going back to maybe episode i don't know three or four whatever it was when we talked about our maestro skills really honing in those maestro skills that is very good at beating defenders off of the dribble in the game and has a transfer that works on all the other stuff that fast footwork works on in terms of a nice clean touch and confidence and ball mastery Right, right, I agree. But but what what I think, you know, I would maybe disagree with you about, but maybe after I've described it, we won't disagree, we'll agree, is the use of the word deception. Because a change of direction, a quick change of direction with the ball, to me, is not deception. It is what it is. It's a change of direction. But it's not deceptive. You know, a, a fake is deceptive. Fast forward, by its nature, is not deceptive. You know, a quick j- change of direction might be the player, but it's not actually a fake. It's not deceptive. Mm-hmm. It's not an illusion. It's not David Copperfield stuff. You know, it's not a shot fake followed by a Maradona turn, you know, which is a completely deception combination of, of you know, improvising a fake to get rid of the ball, you know, with a, t- with a move that incorporates coming backwards and, you know, in a different direction, you know, and, and especially, you know, something like the Matthews that has, um, you know, a lean, which is deceptive, has a big hop, which is deceptive, you know, it has a shoulder throw, which is deceptive. You know, it has these components that are all deceptive within the move. You know, mm-hmm. a lean, a touch, a hop, and a shoulder throw, four deceptive elements that don't play any part in fast footwork. Are you with me? I'm with you on, on that front, and I want to dig into that Maradona or Matthews because the Matthews, it's my favorite skill that we teach and really hone in on because it's one of those skills that even the best of the best defenders can't defend. And those of you guys that are listening, if you've ever seen highlight clips or remember watching Precky in person, Precky, he didn't maybe necessarily do the Matthews exactly the way that we teach it, but he was the king of you knew which way Precky was going, but he gave you fake after fake after fake after fake within the movement that eventually you could convince yourself oh he's not actually going to go that way this time and then that's when he goes that way I, I don't even think you convince yourself i think it's an autonomic response i think there's you know one thing after the other thing after the other thing you know a lean a touch a hop you know and all telling throw. you that you're going one direction yeah you know it's 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 not you know you are eventually convinced of anything it's just that you can't help but go for you know, what it is that you're all seeing, even if you know that nine times out of ten in all of the, the film you've watched this guy, you know, doing this move in the past, he's always gone back the other way. You know, everything you are experiencing causes the alarm bell to go off. And this is important because I think this is tied into, and stay with me here, because this is, I think, different thinking than anything you'll read anywhere else. I call it the flight or fight response as applied to competitive soccer. 
And this is where we as humans, and it's well documented, we have built into our system an automatic response to things that happen that are incredibly scary, you know, devastating. You know, we either very quickly, we either make a decision, decision to flee or to stand our ground and fight it out. You know, and but we have a response, you know, and that I think is what we see in the Matthews because you know the Matthews uh, involves four things that in the competitive sports environment ignite a fight or flight response, and you have to do something when somebody hits you with these four things in machine gun style, bang, 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 bang. You have to do something. Even if you don't take the first lean fake, you know, you, 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 you're maybe going to take the hop fake. You know, you know, it's, you're going to take one of those four fakes uh, because we all have this reaction thing built in. And I use my daughter as an example many times over because she, everybody in our team, in our practices, you know, the team she practices with, they absolutely know that Holly is going to do a Maradona when she puts her body in a certain position. Mm-hmm. And yet the person that's immediately defending against her, even after seeing this and being the victim of this 10,000 times, still cannot stop it happening. Mm-hmm. It's just incredible. Well, it's not just Holly. I remember playing against Brittany, your oldest daughter, and when she would Same do way. that drag Maradona, like I knew it was coming. She invented it. Yeah, and she's she's preparing to do a drag Maradona. I'm wearing you know turf shoes on a turf field, and she's barefoot and destroying me every single time. Well, there's a good story there. Is we were down in New Smyrna Beach on holiday, and it's got a long, flat beach, and and uh, I'm walking down the beach with Brittany, and we had no intention of playing soccer, and there was a bunch of Hispanic guys playing soccer in like a five-on-five. And so we walked up and we started watching, as you do when you're fanatical about soccer, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, Brittany's on the sideline and she said to me, Dad, do you think they'll let me play? And they were adults. And she was like 12, you know. And I said, hey, you know, you're a brave creative leader. Why don't you ask? Yeah. You know, and so she, she went up to the nearest guy and said, can I play? And he, he said, you know, ask the other guys in Spanish, can, can she play? And everyone was like, yeah, why not? You know, let her play, you know. And I could tell they were kind of reluctant, yeah. but... They let her play, you know, it was the right decision, you know, good for the kid. And the very first time she got the ball, she did a drag Maradona and just destroyed <laughs> this man that was trying to tackle her. <laughs> and everybody else jeered him and cheered her, you know, and instantaneously she was totally accepted yeah. in, in that situation. Yeah. You know, after they had, you know, originally not really wanted her involved. And from that point onwards, she was one of the boys. Mm-hmm. You know, it was it was just intriguing from a psychological standpoint how quickly the temperature changed. We've dug into the the Matthews. Um, for those of you get, those of you that are listening, if if you would like, um, Andy and Philippe specifically did a two part video series, Maestro video on the Matthews, where we go in, they go in really in depth into how the Matthews is done perfectly, um, how to teach it slowly to kids, and we'd be willing to share it with you. So um, those two specific videos, we've got them on a private YouTube link. Um, So if you want uh, access to those, email us, Twitter us, Facebook us, Instagram us, um, uh, reach out to us with your ear uh, digesting of information, whatever it takes, we'll, we'll make it happen. Can I pull the Andy and tell a story real quick? Yeah, please do. Philippe, you don't <laughs> tell enough stories on this podcast. Uh, so you mentioned Preki. Uh, like everybody knew what was coming and they couldn't stop him. Having my dad here, you know, talking a lot about soccer with him and my friends, he told a f- uh, cool story about uh, Gerson 
um, who used to be the number eight for Brazil in 1970. Fantastic uh, midfielder. Andy probably watched him more than me, so he can vouch for that. Um, That's another chip on my age, isn't it? I mean, you know, you just had to run no, me into the ground, didn't you? I, I, did, I didn't even say Puskas. Jerson's like 20 years after that, so he's <laughs> it, not that old. I wasn't trying to really? go Really? Puskas? <laughs> <laughs> even that was before my time. <laughs> uh, but anyway, um, some on an interview, and there's the video on YouTube if, if you want to pull it up, um, he's asked, who did he think was better, Pelé? or Garincha, and he had the perfect way of describing both, he said. Pelé was the guy that the ball got to him, you had no idea what he was going to do. He could do anything, so you had no idea, you couldn't stop him. He would do something completely magical, and, you know, he was gone. Garincha, on the other hand, you knew exactly what he was going to do it, but he would still do it. Still do it. He yeah. would still go right every single time, and couldn't stop him. Uh, Sir Stanley, Ma Stanley Matthews, who the touch and hot Matthews is, he eventually invent invented it. He was much the same way. Which, if you haven't watched, I think there's it's on Netflix, maybe or Prime. There's like an hour and a half documentary on Sir Stanley Matthews that is absolute must see. I, I loved it. I didn't know his story um, before watching it, like I do now. So, so that's one <laughs> thing. Like sometimes we're like, oh, the player needs mm -hmm. to be unpredictable, unpredictable. Yes, but also if you're so good a certain skill even though you're predictable they can't stop you so training those skills instead of you know fast foot work mastering you know two or three skills to get out of any situation and you know it's really hard to stop so so let me let, let's go beyond just soccer though because uh, this is a really important topic and this is you know, what I wrote my second book on was Legends for Life. It was about leadership for life. And let's compare the psychology of leadership, the, how fast footwork influences it versus how the ability to destroy a defender with a really dynamic move affects the psychology of leadership. You know, when you walk on the field, if you know you can do something a little bit quick with the ball and you can look a little bit pretty, but, you know, you really can't get past the guy, you can't destroy the guy, you're not going to create a goal-scoring opportunity by beating the guy in a one-on-one, -on -one, you know, then, yeah, you're kind of a bit of a fraud. You know, you're pretending that you're, you know, all that in a bag of chips, but you're not really that good, you know. But if you can absolutely destroy a defender with a fantastic fake and a move, blow by that individual, you know, and then, of course, put the ball in the back of the net, you know, in, in a way that, Pelé or Garincha or any one of the greats could do. Maradona, whoever you want to mention over the last 50, 60 years. If you have that ability, you can only think of yourself as a leader. But more importantly, maybe, or just as important, is that everybody around you sees you as a leader. Sure. And so it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because everybody around you expects you to lead. You know, you can carry the team on your back because you have the ability to beat a player and score an incredible goal. And that's an ability that somebody that's just worked on fast footwork, you know, as George Vizvari would say, say, peeing in the wetsuit, that individual does not have that ability to be regarded by everybody in their whole peer group as the one that can win the game for the team. That is massively defining for life. Because when you're in a very public environment, like the team sport of soccer, which is the biggest sport in the world, you know, if you can make one of those plays, it's probably the most pressured environment in the whole world 
to make one of those plays in because you're in there in front of you know God and everybody. If you've got that ability, then everybody expects you to lead. You expect yourself to lead, and eventually it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, with me, hundred percent, hundred percent. The um, for me, the 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 clips that I think about often, like that kind of talk about the importance of the explosive nature of, of learning the fakes and moves, fakes and moves that actually beat a defender and explode and go to space, um, as opposed to just fast footwork is, is R9, Ronaldinho, or Ronald, Ronaldo uh, from Brazil. There's clips on him of YouTube of just absolutely destroying defenders um, with a, a giant explosion attached. And don't get me wrong, like Ronaldo was was special athletically but he was so, but he was going against special athletically people too but he was so deceptive with his Maradona turns or his Puskas that he would do or the the Croy for the L turn that he would do and then the scissors his scissors is just absolutely special the best I've ever seen um, and so if, if, if you're curious what we're talking about go pull some clips of R9 out and I think you'll see exactly what we mean when we say don't work on fast footwork work on moves that finish with explosion um, and, and you'll have a better transfer of training. Andy, I don't know that we've adequately defined transfer of training and nobody does that I think better than you. Can you when we say transfer of training, can you just lay that out for for the for the listeners um what we mean? Well, when people talk about, you know, uh, a high level of transfer of training from the practice environment to the game environment, then what one is doing in the practice environment, you know, what you're teaching as a coach, what you're doing as a player, uh, is better if there's a high transfer from practice into the game environment. Otherwise, why are you bothering to practice if there's no transfer? The higher the level of transfer from practice into the game, the better the practice content is obviously got to be. You know, And we haven't talked about the economy of training that much, specifically in this episode. We've talked about it a lot because it's an important... Let tenet. me finish on transfer. Yeah. Okay. In order for transfer training to be maximal... The specificity of training has to be maximal. So what you have to be using is specifically the type of skills that you're going to use in the game. And I think you know we've already established that using moves is much better than using fast footwork. You have to do it with maybe even greater than the specific amount of pressure that you're going to encounter in the game so that the game is easy. As they yep. say, you know, hard practice, easy game. Mm-hmm. You know, tough practice in, you know, for war as a soldier, easy battle. You know, so if we can make it a little bit harder during training than the actual war on the weekend, the, the game, all right, then that's the way we need to do it. So you've got transfer training and specificity of training, but you've got to look at what you're doing and you've got to make it more dynamic eventually than it is in the game, M- more challenging. But along the way, you can't go too fast. Otherwise, kids will get lost and they'll start making mistakes in their technique. So you've got to make sure that the technique is right. And um, we were talking before we started the podcast about King Richard, you know, and you know Serena Williams and Venus Williams. And it struck me when I was watching that, which is great. You've got to watch it. Those of you that haven't seen, you know, you've got to see you know, how Richard Williams influenced his daughters, you know, and, you know, and, and basically, you know, set them on the path to being the greatest tennis players that have ever lived. And it's, it's all the more amazing that I never spotted what I spotted when I was watching it before. Because 
in the movie, you see that they had a massive advantage that I've never seen written about, you know, and I, I'd never realized is, you know, they were from a very young age trained to go against each other to build incredible tennis skills. But they had a massive advantage that nobody else had. And it's such a basic advantage you know, that we miss it, you know. And, you know, when I was asking Andrew what advantage, it took him a long while to really, you know, get to the, the core of this issue. They had each other. So they were able, Richard Williams was able to coach them, and they were able to hit shot after shot after shot in practice, you know, that was returnable if that's what Richard Williams was trying to get them to do. And gradually he'd turn up the heat and they'd hit him a little bit harder and, you know, and, and, and a little bit further away from each other. And, but they had a revolving door. They had, you know, their you know, sister on the other side of the net hitting as good a shots back at each other. So, you know, they had an advantage that, that, you know, other kids didn't have that were training for tennis. It took me so long because my experience growing up in whatever sport we did, I was so much better than my brother at that I didn't have a revolving door. I couldn't compete at that same level. That's not what Patrick says. <laughs> <laughs> he said he could beat you up any time of the, any yeah. day of the week. Um, let's, let's, so that's transfer training. Perfect. Makes, it, it, I don't know what, I don't remember you talking transfer of training or economy of training to us when we were kids. And <clears throat> you spent what I am certain um, is a lot more time educating us and selling us on why we were training the way that we were because practice was never easy ever easy and that's why we came up to you ask you for practice like what are we going to do today uh, hoping and praying that we really were going to get to go underwater basket weaving because it was never <laughs> never never easy and when I watch other coaches train genuinely I feel like they make it easier and and, it, and sometimes I think it's so that they can see the pattern that that their coaching book told them to look for in the 5e2 rondo or they um, uh, if it's easier than the kids walk away from the training feel perhaps maybe more accomplished or the parents watching the training session maybe feel like oh my kid's getting better because I could see him link together three or four passes like I see on on TV when I watch the pros play um, and and our and so from a coaching perspective I I can't communicate enough to you guys that are listening. If your kids look good in practice, then your practice isn't hard enough. If they're not making dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of mistakes, both from a decision-making perspective and an execution of the skill, then, then, then it's not chaotic enough. And, and, and I think that's a, a big, important piece. But anyway, back to what I was going to say is, I don't remember you talking about transfer of training or economy of training. It was at some point coaching back in my probably mid 20s when you were telling me uh, you know about the transfer training principle and the economy of training principle where it hit me so much that gosh that's that that was the special sauce for us as players cuz i don't feel like we were even more committed than than the players on uh, opposing teams but we covered so much more ground in the training sessions that we showed up to. I, I wonder how good we would have been had we been committed. Um, Andy, economy of training. That's a big one. We haven't talked about it much in this one, but I think it's perfectly applicable to what we're talking about. Can you define economy of training for us? Yeah, that's where you get the maximum out of the amount of time you've got available. So, you know, it's and, you know, to and, and any number of things can influence economy of training. And, and I'm going to use another example from the world of pro sports because uh, I was just reading about uh, Tiger Woods, you know, and he was very similar to the, you know, the, the Williams sisters in as much as he had a manic dad who, you know, who started him into in youth golf as soon as he was able to stand up straight, you know, and so so Earl Woods and you know Richard Williams are two of a kind, you know, they're of the same ilk, you know, they they groomed their children 
to be sporting superstars. Um, but one of the things that gets missed is that, you know, Tiger had a coach called Randy Duran that actually was at the forefront of making little clubs for golfers in those days. And Randy Duran was the actual guy that taught Tiger most of his stroke play. He was a professional golf pro, you know, and he was the one that went over and over what Tiger should do, you know, with the club. But he actually had a club that he made that was fitted to Tiger so that Tiger could actually use the club in the manner of an adult. You know, the, practice, the practice Tiger was doing as a six-year-old was efficient. It was it was the same type of swing that he eventually used as an adult. Yep. You know, and and he was trained by a golf club. He didn't have to use extra muscles to figure out how to swing a bigger club. Right. And and Randy went one step further. He actually created at his golf club a miniature course so that the kids could uh, play golf to their par level, because there was a miniature course, miniature tees, and everything that the kids could play on. You know, so. You know, not only did Tiger have a perfect size club for him to use, but he also had a miniature golf course, you know, that was, and uh, apparently Tiger consistently for his age shot a 67 as related to a par of 72. How amazing is that? You know, because his technique was that good on this miniature course that, that Randy had created. Mm-hmm. So once again, you've got um, the transfer of training from um, an almost perfect environment to, you know, the adult environment, you know, and these things make a huge difference. If, if what you're working on is actually the skill or the environment that most develops the greatest level of positive transfer of training, specificity of training, then you've got it made in the shade because you're going to be developing a, a, a skill set that 99.9% of kids are never exposed to because their coaches haven't even thought about the game of soccer in this depth, if that makes sense. Yeah, and the margins are so small um, that, uh, I mean, when we were talking about Tiger before, like had he not had that opportunity at six to, to swing a club that actually fits him or play on a course that actually fits him, like that maybe, that maybe was the margin of greatness for Tiger. And if he didn't have that, maybe we don't, we've never even heard of Tiger Woods. And, and that's realistic, plausible, likely. Um, to be the case. Well, the, the the margin of success at the higher levels is minuscule. It's, it's min- minuscule, yeah. So that if yeah. you don't get the right head start and, or, or train the right way when you're six or seven or even ten or eleven, maybe you miss out miss it altogether. Yeah, and and you know another example, uh, Novak Djokovic uh, grew up in Serbia and he had tennis courts across the street, but according to his own description, the thing that he really used a lot was an abandoned swimming pool, and. The deep end of the swimming pool provided an eight to ten foot wall that he could shoot against, you know, and he was able in his mind's eye to create a four foot line, you know, so that you know the the you know the net or three and a half whatever the net is in tennis, you know that line, and he was able to hit the ball between the line and the top of the pool, but if he hit the ball too high, mm-hmm. he would have to go and fetch, you know, at least after a while he probably had a number of tennis balls, but after a while he'd have to go and fetch all the balls that he hit too high, and I'm sure he didn't just chase one. You know, but you know, that was what, in his estimation, allowed him be- to become a great player. And, but if he hit it too wide, the ball was fed back to him by the side and then the end of the pool so that he didn't have to chase all the balls. Even when he hit the ball wide, it wasn't like playing against, uh, you know, playing in an open tennis ball where you'd have to lit- a court where you'd have to follow all the balls and, and pick them up. So it was rebounding, rebounding, rebounding in a very specific situation where his target area was small enough 
that if he hit it, the ball would stay in bounds most of the time in an outdoor tennis court. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he, he wasn't just, you know, pounding on the ball and having it go in, you know, 20 feet out of bounds. He had to keep it low enough between that, you know, that net line and the top of the pool, you know. So he had this incredible opportunity that I don't know of another tennis player that I've ever heard of that had the chance to practice in an empty swimming pool. Cal, my, my youngest, who's eight, um, two Christmases ago, so he'd have been six at the time, wanted a tennis net. Tennis is, according to him, his favorite sport. I think because he, he knows it's tough to access for us, and so he's a contrarian by nature. Um, anyways, Cal wanted a, ten, a tennis net, so we got a, uh, a little pop-up tennis net and put it in the driveway. And like, and through the last couple of years, like we would go through stents, whereas every night it seemed like he wanted to go out and we'd hit tennis balls. And we got to where, and I'm not a tennis player, but I could volley with him, and him and I could have really good volleys that would go on for a while. And he was begging me to take him to a tennis court. And I finally I got to a point where I was like, okay, like our volleys are pretty good. Going to a tennis court probably won't be miserable. We went to a – and we could volley 30 in a row. We went to a tennis court. The space was so big that him and I had an awful time because all we did was chase balls, and I think I took like 20 to, right. the, to, to the net. So even even my 8-year-old or 7-year-old probably at the time, who was pretty decent at it, like the environment was so poor that if that was his only environment, he wouldn't, he wouldn't ever be able to achieve anything from a tennis perspective. So. Yeah, and arguably, you know, two of the maybe the top four players that I ever coached in girls soccer, you know, were twins, Dana and Nicole Hemmingson. You know, everybody around here knows them because they've coached for us, and you know, and then you know, uh, one of them has a Brazilian husband who also coached for us, and uh, and uh, they always had opposition to play against. So on a regular, you know, nightly, you know, routine, they would go into the backyard and they play one on one against each other. You know, and one-on-one -on -one to a goal, one-on-one -on -one keep away. And because of their constant one-on-ones, they were like the Williams sisters. You know, they ended up being, you know, central midfield and center striker for Park University in the purple patch in Park's history for as far as women's soccer and the success that they had. You're going to have to define purple patch for Americans. The purple patch is, you know, is when, you know, they have their best in history winning record. You know, it's, it's uh, an English saying for... You know, when everything's as good as it's ever been or better than ever anything that's ever previously existed. When, or when, when was England's purple patch in soccer <laughs> in the international level? <laughs> Never, because even in the beginning, Scotland was better than them. <laughs> What's the next topic? <laughs> <laughs> uh, really, Philippe? Too, really? That's too good. You had to go there. Um, I, so I want to I want to move into the li listener questions here in a few minutes. So let's let's wrap up thoughts related to fast footwork and juggling from a, a training perspective. Andy, uh, what else uh, uh, did you want to share? Well, you know, there's a classic. I want everybody to go to YouTube, and I want you to look up the Sacre Juggler. You know. S A C R E. I've seen images of him. Yeah, yeah, C O U E R. You know, Sacred Heart in yep. French, juggler. Yep. Uh, and you know, you do that one search and put in, you know, that is exactly what I put in, and I've seen this a number of times and gone back and watched it. The guy's incredible. He juggles up a lamppost, mm -hmm. you know, which is just you know unbelievable, and juggles at the top of the lamppost in all sorts of weird and wonderful positions. Strong as an ox, incredible touch. One of the comments in the comment section was, this guy should be playing pro. He'd be the best in the world. Well, he's not. That's why he's panhandling <laughs> with juggles. Right. <laughs> at a French he's, tourist destination. You know, as good as he is at juggling, you know, he's probably just an average soccer player because he spent all his time juggling. So he's literally got a cap on the floor 
taking you know francs and, and euros as donations. I don't think francs yeah. much anymore. Yeah, I think it doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> does it? I'm going back Showing to my that And then he yeah. gets upset when yeah. we tell him. So. Well, why did I set myself up for more abuse? <laughs> francs. <laughs> Didn't the franc go out like <laughs> almost 25 years ago? <laughs> at your age, don't you know better than, than to set yourself up? Anyway, you know, <laughs> anyway, you know, it's quite an eye opener because, you know, he's obviously incredibly good at juggling, you know, and, and I had a fantastic friend, David Villalobos, um, and he'll probably kill me when he hears this podca- podcast. And he was the most incredible juggler I ever knew personally, you know, and, you know, David, you know, and I would have juggling competitions and I wasn't in his universe as far as juggling is concerned. And David actually went over to England to try out for professional teams and he just never quite made it because... He didn't have the game sense that he would have had if he had focused on doing moves to beat players and you know and destroying you know defenders to a greater degree. And he always looked pretty and you know and didn't look effective enough for British coaches. Now that might be part of the problem: is British coaches are perennially biased against you know people that are all that in a bag of chips and you know just look good, you know, and so they're less likely to be impressed than a Brazilian coach. You know, with somebody's dribbling or, you know, ball skills, you know, but, you know, poor David didn't make it in Britain, you know, and he had tremendous juggling skills, you know, and, and good dribbling skills, but maybe hadn't learned where and when to put those into the game to make it at the highest level, you know, like a Georgie Best, you know, so... So, Philippe, let me throw this to you really quick, Andy, if you don't mind. Um, so, I'm trying to, to guess what a listener might ask us, who may be a listener who has invested a lot of time with their own kid or their own teams into practice and juggling or fast footwork what would be and I, I, their perspective is probably it's a great thing to work on at home like the kids find it to be kind of fun it's only them and a ball they don't need anything else and it's a great thing to work on at home so philippe what what would you say to that now in hindsight looking back on it what what, what do you tell your kids what should they be doing at home with the ball as opposed to um to juggling or, or fast footwork Again, um, juggling is fun, and I'm not going to say it's not. It is cool to do and stuff. Kids like it, you know. In the practice environment, I think it's absolutely terrible to waste time doing. Again, they can do it at home, you know. Sometimes kids are not going to try, you know, work on thousands of skills every day. So it it's still getting touches on the ball, you know, doing stuff and getting uh, more passion for the game. But if... If you want to be the best, if it's a kid that has the mentality, I'm going to spend this time doing what's best. I mean, I honestly, skills and, uh, again, wall and shooting because, I mean, that's the best skill of the game. It's shooting, scoring goals. That's what I tell my kids, my own kids at home, like, get the ball out, right? And if you want to work on something, get the ball out. Do a Matthews and then shoot it against the garage door. And when it comes to back to you, settle it. Do a Matthews and then shoot it against the garage door. Turn it into a game. Every time you hit the specific target on the garage door you want, you get a point. Set the timer. Mm-hmm. Go for a minute. How many How many perfect Matthews and shots on the, the – and that is equally, if not more, uh, fun to juggling. And it's definitely a whole lot more applicable oh, 100%. to the game. Yeah. I mean, honestly, for me, there's nothing more fun than shooting the ball. It's uh, just a great feeling. And if you are playing a game or in scrimmage, the moment that ball hits the net, oh, my God, it's such a good feeling. And if you'd like to see what how Philippe feels when he, the, the ball hits the back of the net, go to our, our, our YouTube 
you or social channels. I think Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook within the last week or so have uh, Philippe's t- first two goals that he scored of the season for the Comets professionally indoor, and they are both absolute stunners. <laughs> Andy, I see you're uh, thinking over there. You're reading something. What's next? Well, one of the things I did, you know, specifically this podcast is um, I, I researched the number of sites that promote juggling. And, you know, one of the, you know, the, the promoters of the, you know, the, the, the juggling art, um, you know. And Andy Phil Basically, <laughs> you know, basically um, was making a statement that, uh, that you know, that you, you can see how, you know, players can juggle down the field during a game. You know, and so I'm, 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 you know, reading this statement about how the great players can juggle down the field, you know, and, and in my mind's eye, when somebody says juggle down the field, I'm thinking, you know, 40 yards, 50 <laughs> yards, you know, and so and never having seen this, so, you know, I, I think, well, I'm going to do some, you know, I'm going to check this out. So I dialed in juggling into my YouTube, you know, thing, and, uh, and, and I, I specifically went to CR7 juggling, mm-hmm. you know, and it was fascinating because... Uh, there was all these clips of CR7 juggling in the game, uh-huh. you know, you know, and guess which way he juggled? He juggled in the direction of his own goal. <laughs> every <laughs> single clip bar from one, pressure. every, from every pressure. single clip bar one was him juggling away, away from, from pressure. pressure. Yeah, you know, and and so juggling down the field, the guy's in cloud cuckoo land because <laughs> the nearest thing I've ever seen to somebody juggling down the field is when. Cafu top hatted oh, yeah, yeah, somebody, yeah. Yeah. you know, twice in a row. Pavel Nedved. Uh, but it was terrible defense. Yeah. I mean, the guy shouldn't have committed. If he'd have stayed on, the, on his back foot, you know, and challenged Cafu to beat him with something, then he wouldn't have been beaten. Yeah. You know? So, you know, it, there's, there's no evidence that you can juggle down the field. You know? And the only evidence out there that you can juggle at all in the game is when you go away from pressure. And here's the thing, I'm watching, you know, and look it up, don't believe me, be a, be a skeptic. You know, I, I love skeptical people because you know, they need to see proof that something's reality. And you, know, you will see uh, Cristiano Ronaldo juggling it, you know, one, two, three, four, sometimes five touches away from pressure. And I'm looking at him saying, had you brought it down on the first touch, Turning on you could have turned and played a penetrating pass. You know, you could have penetrated that much easier. And what he does, he just kind of like react, relaxes, juggles away from pressure, and then gives a simple pass. It's off. just more a provocative uh, thing than an actual effective thing. You know, like it's to kind of make fun of the op- opposition. Sure. Well, m- more than that, I think it, it, it's CR7. You know, he, he's a peacock. It's look at me, look what I can do. I'm yeah. gonna, you know, just for. Entertainment purposes. There's nothing wrong with entertainment, mm-hmm. you know. But he could have done something really viable in that in that time he was juggling, in my opinion, you know. And I've never seen a, a a juggling sequence that beat a defender because when you pop the ball up, there's all sorts of reaction time, and professional players react in a split second. So if you pop the ball up, they're not going to let you, you know, wait for it to hit the floor, unless you're popping up up away from pressure. In which case they don't care too much, you know. But if you're trying to beat them with it by popping it up, they will be at that ball, you know, in a heartbeat, mm-hmm. and it won't work. Yeah, you know. So, you know, that was just one of the things that I wanted to mention in this podcast is yeah. that I don't ever see anybody juggling down the field. It's not an end in itself. 
<laughs> well, and uh, when it happens, it leads to fights. Like back in the Brazilian league, sometimes, uh, like in the late 90s, there's a final between Corinthians and Palmeiras, and you know they biggest rivals and all that, and they played the Libertadores semifinal, and Palmeiras beat Corinthians, and then there was the State Cup final, and Corinthians playing against Palmeiras, and Corinthians is winning, and Edilson gets the ball, starts juggling, put it around his neck, and then they just come flying, and then a fight breaks down, and the whole stadium fights and all that, and Edilson, it's funny because he was in the national team, got cut because of that, Guess who was the guy who came to replace him? It was the first cap ever at 17 years old. Ronaldo? Ronaldinho. Ronaldinho. And then he scored that goal against Venezuela that he chips the ball over the guy and, and scored. And after that, he just stayed. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Um, okay. Uh, do you guys want some listener questions? Andy, do you have anything else Let's you want to it. mention? Um. One of the questions asked on one of the websites, well, what grade would you give juggling in terms of importance to learning for great <laughs> soccer players? I thought you were going to give it a four. No, out of, out no of I, I, maybe one out of ten, <laughs> if it's lucky, is, is, is my, my grading. Um, advice to kids that spend time juggling, don't do it unless you want to be a circus act, not a soccer player. I'm not pulling any punches here. There's much better things you can be doing if you want to be a professional soccer player. Instead of juggling, take hundreds of thousands of shots. Practice all the shooting skills you will need to score in all of the game's attacking situations. To develop a great first touch, rebound shoot on the second touch against a wall. Your first touch in this drill will develop an amazing ability to put the ball in exactly the right place for the perfect finish. In addition, practice one great move for each dribbling situation you will encounter in the game. In our club, we teach the best move for the six specific one versus one situations most encountered in the game. So, you know, let's not just criticize people that juggle. Let's give people a plan. Yeah. You know, and I, I listen to a lot of podcasts, I read a lot of books, um, and, and especially commentary in soccer where everybody is a critic and everybody knows better than the pro coach. But they don't offer up a solution. This club, entity, franchise system, whatever you want to call it, what we do offers up massive solutions to the problems that you, you encounter in a game. Out of the box, you know, we're, we're constantly... Um, Swimming upstream against opinions. You know, we are slaughtering many <laughs> sacred cows, <laughs> you know, and along the way, I'm sure, making enemies of people that, you know, make a living out of fast footwork. Mm -hmm. You know, and I don't want to make enemies. I've got great respect. For example, Yael uh, Averbush, uh, who uh, uh, played for the University of North Carolina, long professional career. Um, played for my great friend Anson Dorrance and you know she has a company called Techni and, and they spend a lot of time on fast footwork in, in, in that environment and you know I have a personal opinion that she would have been a world beating player if she'd have work on, worked on moves to absolutely destroy a defender instead of repetitive um, fast footwork type of stuff the you know because she's fast she's strong she's tall she's got all the athletic ability she's super intelligent you know her mom actually you know co-authored uh, uh, vision of a champion which is a book that anson wrote 
And so great respect for the family, great respect for, for uh, Yael. And, and I just cannot subscribe to that philosophy that, that you know, the fast footwork that the organization she runs specializes in is actually the best thing for a player. There's some wall work, I think. There's some rebound surface stuff. And I agree with that yeah. stuff. But yeah. it's, it's more controlling instead of ripping shots. Yeah. You know, and I think the wall work should be uh, you know, hammering a shot. The most, difficult, the most difficult release skill, which is... Yeah, or, or placing a swerving shot yep. you know, yep. into the top corner of the net, you know, or whatever it might be. Because you know, those transfer down. Of the foot. To to sim- one. The, those transfer down to more simple passes. Uh, that, oh, that you know, if you can score... You can pass. Then you can pass. You put the right weight on the ball to put it around the defender as, in the back. As long as you if practice. If you can score, you don't need anything else. If you can score, you can score. You always have a place. It's that simple. Yeah, there's, there, there's no arguing with that. You know, the people can put the ball in the net, the first player on the team sheet. Who yeah. gets you know? who gets paid the most? Yeah. Who You look at all the Ballon d'Ors, and then they, you know, Zidane headbutted a guy, and now, okay, let's give it to a center back. But, like, it's always strikers. It's <laughs> always goal scorers. It's the most important thing in the game, scoring goals. I mean, if you're going to pick one thing to really focus on and work on, shooting, hands down. So um, so this question comes from, it's in response to the, the last sacred cow we slaughtered, uh, futsal. Um, and it, it was really good because it came from, it actually comes from a coach, a personal coach, a personal friend um, who uh, has his team playing futsal. But he, it, it seemed as though a lot of what we discussed about futsal really resonated with him. Um, and he, he asked out of curiosity, having been to our indoor facilities before, right? So he knows what they look like. Um, are there any negatives, even just small negatives that we could think of uh, related to uh, boarded indoor soccer um, and developing players for the outdoor game? Um, and um, mm-hmm. I, I, I think there are probably some small negatives. I, I, I think there are for sure. Andy, do you think that there are potentially any small negatives that we as coaches have to coach around? Yeah, my wife knows where I am all the time. <laughs> uh, I, I notice my own players sometimes in training getting sloppy with um, my older players when we're doing 2v2s quite a bit or 4v4 in their passing. They're getting sloppy with passes. Um, and so um, uh, they're, they're passing that that is just like, oh, my teammates over there, I'll just put it in that general vicinity. It'll bounce off the wall and they'll, they'll collect it again. Um, for me, when I notice that, then I just add a new restriction to, to, to the 2v2 or the 4v4 that conditions out of the player that specific habit that I think they might be getting into. And for me, it's just, hey, if it hits the, that, that side wall on a pass, it's, it's out of play. And we don't stop. We don't do a free kick. It's just out of play. The other team gets the ball if they can get it within three seconds and we play. And my girls have gotten too good, so it happens really fast. Um, but if it hits the wall and comes back in play, it's still in play. Like, we're still playing. There's no slowing of the game. And so I've done that occasionally at times to clean some of that up. I think that the walls, specifically everything that we talked about in terms of keeping the speed of play and the ball never escapes, is what makes it far superior to futsal. But I I, I, mean, I can be critical and I can say that, yeah, I think that that's something that I sometimes have to create a con- condition to adjust for. Does that make sense? Yeah, 100%. Do you have anything you want to add at? Or Andy, are you just uh, shooting fire in my eyes because I criticize the walls? Well, you know, I've, over the years, trained in probably every environment that has been available to be used. And for me, the walls speed the game up. You know, the, there's, the, there's no breaks. You have to read the angles. 
you know, you have to react to a ball that's, you know, even if somebody just puts the ball into that area, everybody has to react to the way that ball is moving. Mm -hmm. They have to read it quickly. They have to, you know, get to the right angle. You know, they have to take into account the opponent they're playing against and, you know, what that opponent is doing. And so, um, you know, it's, you know, you, you take a pool table, you know, does it add something to be able to play something off of a wall in pool, off of, off of the, you know, the, you know, the outside of the table? It does. You know, sure. the game has got massive extra dimensions, you know, that, that make it, you know, way more tactically interesting than if you had to keep everything within, you know, the outside, otherwise yep. you'd lose your shot. Yep. So, you know, it's, to me, that's a huge advantage. Walls are in every way um, something that speeds the game up, causes people to, you know, think on their feet at speed. Makes it more difficult. Yeah, it makes it more difficult, which makes the player better. Yep. You know, yep. and so... You know, this is, uh, you know, that old saying, you know, in practice, I often felt that coaches wanted to look good instead of making their players good. This is something I mentioned earlier. Yeah. So, you know, they come to practice, you know, with, you know, all these, you know, diagrams in their head and they want their goal to be the, you know, the perfect diagram. Mm -hmm. And so they'll, they'll go over and over and over, you know, a pattern play mm -hmm. that they want to see happen in a game. Mm -hmm. But the reality is the game's not like that is, you know, you can see games, thousands of games, and you won't see the exact pattern play that they, in their mind, you know, have depicted, you know. And so it's just crazy. You've got to teach your kids to be flexible on the fly, mm -hmm. you know. And, you know, your environment has got to um, challenge them to a whole new level every time they go out there to learn something beyond what they already know, mm -hmm. you know. And that's why... I have a real issue with youth coaches teaching tactics to any great degree because there are thousands of tactics and your youth player is going to leave you, the youth coach, to go and play for, hopefully, because they're good enough, any number of coaches after that. And every single coach that they play for is going to have a different tactical plan or different tactical mm. scheme. So the only things that we should be working on as a youth coach are the things that transfer to the next level. To every tactical system. To every tactical, tactical system. Yeah. And small-sided games do. Yeah. In and around the penalty area, you've got to find your way improvisationally through the defensive pressure to get a shot off. Yeah. Whether that's with a deceptive dribble, a quick combination pass, or a, a fantastic shot from 25 yards. You know, and that's what we do ad infinitum till the cows come home. Speaking of that, there was a player I was showing some, you guys some clips before we started recording that played for the club for a really long time. I think from like four uh, to, I don't know, until he went off to the academy. So a long time. Played for me for four years, three years, something like that. Patrick Wilkinson, he's playing for SLU. SLU is the only team left that's undefeated in Division One um, in the tournament. They're now in the Sweet 16. I think they're getting ready to play Duke maybe at the weekend. Um, and I was chatting to his dad and, and asking him about kind of his role within the team this year. And he said they, they play a 4-4-2, a 4-4-1-1, and their center midfielders are very basically passing pivots, if you will. And Patrick is a center midfielder. I see him only as a center midfielder. But – but in our system, he trained as a, as a first defender, second defender, first attacker, second attacker. He trained in a very egalitarian, learned the skill sets, right, and, and can play in any, any position. And Patrick currently is playing, I think, often some center mid, but oftentimes wide left. And I don't see him as a wide left player at all, but he is so 
comfortable in different areas that the coach says, I got to get him on the pitch. I got to get him somewhere on the field. And I know while he's been at SLU and is for actually five years, and this is his COVID year, he spent time playing outside back. He spent time playing outside forward. He spent time at the six and the eight and the 10. He spent, I think, even a little bit of time, maybe even at center back. And he's just one of those players that can play everywhere. And I think that, that when we don't focus on tactics, we create players that can play at that level, even if the coach has a preference for somebody else and maybe their best position. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I, I'm reminded, you know, uh, uh, constantly of how much better our system and our, our philosophy is. A couple of examples recently, uh, you know, information just came out that uh, I think it was 10 players that had made it to the, um, the final national tryouts in Florida for the national team. Yeah, they're an interregional ODP event right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And three of those are from our club. So, in it, well, I mean, that's not so special. Three players. Well, understand this is from the whole of Kansas. It's just all the kids that are playing soccer across like four different age groups from the whole of Kansas. Three of the, you know, the, the ten that have been selected are from our club. You know, and, and that's uh, ungodly to get 30% of the total number from one club with all those teams, all those players. You know, and why is this? Well, they have a massive impact. They stand out. They're willing to go to that level and not be intimidated. You know, they can score goals. They can, you know, dribble people. They can create goals. You know, if they can score goals, they've got great passing skills. You know, and so, and then, you know, the other one was a little bit closer to home because um, I went to uh, the semifinal and the final of the high school state championship. And uh, my neighborhood, my daughter and, and uh, one of my sons went to Latha West, a new high school. They were playing in the semifinal and made it to the final. And I went along to watch both games. And, you know, two players popped up with all the goals, all the assists. And um, between three players, another player, every single dead ball was taken by these three kids. Corner kicks, free kicks, uh, you know, penalty kicks. Every dead ball was taken by these three players. Guess which club those three players had played for? Our club. Why is this? Why did our three players, and there weren't any other Legends players or ex-Legends players in that group, why was it all the Legends players that were scoring the goals, getting the assists, taking the free kicks on the high school state champion team? It's because they had taken an ungodly number of shots. You know, and you know, when I totaled up the number of shots my daughter Holly had taken in one year, you know, when she was 14, uh, I kept all the score sheets and I went through and I came up with a basic minimum of 60,000 shots and a maximum of 80,000 shots in one year. That's unreal. And it's only because the ball comes back to you in our uh, box soccer courts, on our boarded fields. The repetition is just off of the charts. So you cannot help to get good at striking the ball because you don't waste time chasing balls. You know, it's fed right back to you. And so that repetition factor and therefore consequently... The specificity of shooting training is up to a massive degree, and the transfer of training from practice into the game is up to a massive degree, and it becomes like walking and talking. You know, it's so easy that you don't even have to think about it when you do it. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that's what happens when you repeat something, which is what walking and talking is. Mm-hmm. It's something that we've repeated all our lives, walking along and talking to people, and it becomes just a habit. And we can't fall off of that track, mm-hmm. you know. So, you know, and this has happened. It's like when you were a senior, there was that senior high school game mm-hmm. at Arrowhead Stadium. You remember that? Yeah, I do. 
and we had two teams in your age group. And this is going back all the way to when were you a senior? What year? 2001. 2000, Fall of 2001. 2001. You know, so 20 years ago, when Andrew was a senior, I went down to Arrowhead and I watched the high school game. We had 24 players out of the 36 players on those two rosters from the Kansas City metro area. 24 out of 36. And that was before we had our indoor facilities. Yeah. That's ungodly. And I wasn't one of them, but that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> I had to go sit in the stands of Arrowhead City and watch all my teammates play. And why weren't you one of them? Because uh, uh, actually Jefferson and Lincoln Robley, um, those listening, soccer guys from the area. Um, Good guys. They run it. They run. Uh, they, they used to run that event, and they called it the Andrew Clifton rule. Every school could have two players, and so that made up the roster. Well, we had four good players, if you will, and um, Abdullah, who coaches for the club, good friend now, <laughs> drew out of a hat of the four, the two. He didn't pick who he thought the best two was. I think he was trying to be political, and he, and so I didn't I didn't get picked. <laughs> and so, That's not what Abdullah told me. <laughs> so the Robley, the <laughs> Robley brothers actually said to me, because I played for him for the brass in the PDL for four years all through oh, college. So you, so you played on the brass like semi-protein. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah they, the they said, oh no, we call that the Andrew Clifton rule. We save back a few spots for guys that got robbed like you uh, <laughs> that we can put into the roster. But anyways, I rem- so, so they didn't have the Andrew Clifton rule before. No, but after. Afterwards, they yeah. put it in. And only the best get rules named after him, right? You've yeah. got the David Beckham rule in MLS, <laughs> the Andrew Clifton oh, rule dear. in Missouri, Kansas high school oh. all-star game soccer, can you right? Give me a few like- minutes while I go and vomit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we should wrap up. We are 120 minutes into, or I'm sorry, 80 minutes into this, 83 minutes into this podcast. Andy, do you have anything else you wanted to share um, uh, for the audience? Uh, taking this in, consuming this through the years. Okay, so I wanted to finish with this, and then, you know, I tend to do that. But um, uh, as regards fast work, footwork and juggling, the question is not whether fast footwork or juggling training is useful. The key issue so that no time is wasted is whether training fast footwork and juggling is more useful than learning the legends, fakes, and moves and the various ways to score great goals. The game of soccer is so diverse that there are thousands of movement patterns that can be practiced. Training throw-ins is useful. Working on set plays is useful. Working on fast footwork is far more useful than either training throw-ins or set plays. However, a soccer career is so short that there is no time to waste. Therefore, it is our responsibility to identify what is most useful and wisely spend our training time on developing the components of the game that most benefit each player in soccer and in life. Make sense? It does. Yep. That, the game that we played at the beginning was trying to achieve that, that paragraph. <laughs> How'd I do? Should we play it again? <laughs> <laughs> guys thank you so much for consuming this with your ears we uh very much appreciate it andy and Philippe, thank you for putting this out with your mouths i appreciate it um, <laughs> you're welcome you're welcome yeah. <laughs> onwards and upwards we're going to try to record again next week and uh, hopefully we'll get this up before thanksgiving so with that said enjoy your turkey gobble gobble and we'll uh talk to you guys next time thank you everybody thank you bye-bye